0: Well, good morning, church family. So good to see all of you this morning, and welcome to those who are out on the patio or worshiping online. Uh, good to be back after a couple of Sundays out of the pulpit. And um, during Mission Sunday, um, I was away camping with um, three of my sons and my stepdaughter's boyfriend, so we gave him a hard time. But um, yeah, so we were camping, and then the thunderstorms came in, and, and uh, we, we had a good time, even though it was cold and wet. So, but good to be back. When I first met a guy that I'll, I'll call Jerry, um, my first impression is that I'd never met anybody who was more committed to Jesus than he was. Jerry had lived a wild life until someone shared the message of Christ with him as, a, as an adult. And now as a new Christian, Jerry's faith seems, seemed exceptionally strong. He seemed willing to do anything that Jesus might ask him to do, no matter how radical or how embarrassing it might have been. None of us who knew Jerry doubted that he would have just gotten on a plane to become a missionary at the drop of a hat if he felt Jesus was leading him to do that, or given away all of his possessions to the poor, or even laid down his life for his faith. But after about six months... Just as abruptly as Jerry had started in his faith journey, he abandoned it. Jerry's faith was like a rocket that took off and then ran out of fuel before it hit the atmosphere. Jesus once told a parable about people like that. People whose faith is like a seed that falls on rocky soil. And the seed sprouts and grows quickly, but then it shrivels and dies because it has no depth. When we talk about faith as Christians today, we, we sometimes talk about how strong or how weak a person's faith is in a given situation. And so when we meet someone like Jerry, whose faith seems really strong at the moment, we're really impressed with the strength of his faith. But then when we meet someone who's going through a crisis of faith, or someone who's struggling with doubts, we tend to judge their faith as weak. But in the Bible, the focus is not so much on how strong or how weak a person's faith is, but on the length of their faith, the perseverance of their faith. Jesus once said that faith the size of a mustard seed is sufficient if it's placed in the right object. And this kind of faith may wax and wane at different times and in different seasons of our life. But authentic faith is a faith that will endure We're in a series called Living by Faith through Hebrews chapters 11, 12, and 13. And in this series, we've defined faith as grasping on to God's promises and holding on. Last week, Pastor Kate did a great job of showing us how authentic faith helps us press through fear. She reminded us that sometimes our faith leads us to victory in this life, but sometimes it doesn't. And to paraphrase the, word, paraphrase the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel, we have faith that God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still have faith. Faith leads us to press through fear, no matter what stands on the other side of that fear, whether victory in this life or victory in the next. And today we're going to talk about the perseverance of faith. And so if you're willing and able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word from Hebrews 11, verses 39 through chapter 12, verse 13. It's a rather long passage. This is the word of God for us today. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and this is out of Proverbs, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, and what children are not disciplined by their father? If you were not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more shall we submit to the father of spirits and live? Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. You can be seated. What do we need to persevere in our faith? The dominant word picture in this passage is that of a race. And this word picture would have been very familiar to the readers of the book of Hebrews. After all, they lived in the Roman Empire, and a part of the Roman Empire was the country of Greece. And about 800 years before Hebrews was even written, the Greeks had founded the ancient Olympics. People throughout the Roman Empire loved athletic competition, especially the Olympics. In fact, throughout the Roman Empire, every couple of years, there were four different athletic festivals throughout the empire, the largest being the Olympics. And these festivals included um, athletic events like chariot racing and boxing, long jump, javelin throwing. But the most popular event of all to watch was the long-distance foot race. And so using this familiar image of a long-distance race, Hebrews helps us see what we need to persevere in the race of faith. And in this section, we're going to see five things we need to persevere in our faith. And the first thing we need is the encouragement of the crowd. The encouragement of the crowd. In verse 39, the author reminds us that all the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11, and there's a lot of them, were commended for their faith. God approved of their lives not because of their achievements or their heroics or their works, but God commended them because they lived by faith in God's promises. People like Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and Rahab, the prophets and the martyrs, all grasped on to God's promises to them in their generation. And yet they did not receive all that God promised them, because they were holding on to promises that stretch well beyond their lifetime. In verse 40, Hebrews says that it's only with us that they would be made perfect. It's only together with us that these ancient people of faith would experience all that God had promised them and their generation. That is a remarkable thing to say. Now, a common meaning of the Greek word translated made perfect in verse 40 is to successfully finish a task. The people of faith in Hebrews 11 only successfully finish their race as we finish our race. You see, the race of faith in this section is like a relay race, where runners pass the baton to the next generation of runners, and so on and so forth until the baton is passed to you and I today. The ancient men and women of chapter 11 have all run their part of the race. And now they've passed the baton on to us. Those who've pictured have already run their leg in this relay race are pictured in verse 1, chapter 12, as sitting in a stadium watching us. And this stadium is called a cloud of witnesses, a mass of people that's too large to count. Bible scholar Mary Healy says that the biblical figures in Hebrews 11 are not just heroes from the distant past, but there are enthusiastic fans today. You see, the stadium Hebrews 12:1 pictures is not like an NFL football game where a bunch of football fans are watching a football game on the field. Someone once described football as 50,000 people desperately in need of exercise watching 22 people desperately in need of rest. No, this stadium pictured in Hebrews 12.1 is more like what I've seen in national rock climbing competitions. As you know, my youngest son competed in U.S. climbing competitions for eight different seasons. And in five of those eight seasons, he went to the national championship. And in a national climbing competition, by the time you get to the final round, usually usually five men and five women, the majority of the spectators who are watching are all other athletes, other climbers who have already climbed earlier and want to see how it all ends. The athlete's who've already competed are the fans, the spectators. And that's more like what Hebrews 11 and 12 is picturing for us. The cloud of witnesses watching us aren't just people who happen to like to watch people race, but they're the runners who've already run their part of the relay. And now they're seated in the stadium watching you and I. And if we want to persevere, We need their encouragement. We need to hear Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Rahab clapping and calling out our name and saying, you can do it. We need to hear the cheers of the prophets and the martyrs in the stands. Maybe they're starting the wave as we turn to the final stretch of our race. But you know, this cloud of witnesses doesn't end with the people listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews. The runners in the stands of this stadium include people who ran their part of the relay after the book of Hebrews was finished. This cloud of witnesses includes people like Athanasius, an African Christian from the fourth century who refused to back down on his belief that Jesus was fully God, even though it cost him his freedom. It includes Teresa of Avila, a Spanish Christian from the 16th century who taught people how to pray. And in light of the fact that tomorrow, Halloween, is also Reformation Day, let me mention some of the people from the Reformation cheering us on, like Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation in Germany when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg on Halloween in 1517. Or Katharina Schutz in evangelism, who wrote hymns for the Reformation in popular devotional books. Or William Tyndale in England, who translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English, the first one to do that. Or John Knox, who reformed the church in Scotland, leading to the formation of the Presbyterian Church. And moving forward from the Reformation in the stadium, we can hear the cheers of Billy Graham who proclaimed the good news of Jesus to more than 200 million people in his lifetime. And Teresa of Calcutta, the Albanian Christian who devoted her life in service of the poor in India. This is why I love church history because I learn about those who've run the relay before me and have passed the baton to me. But this cloud of witnesses in this stadium doesn't just end with church history. In this stadium, cheering for us are also the people that we've known personally who've left behind a legacy of faith for us to follow. I think of my grandmother, Laura, who lived a a quiet but devout life of faith until she passed away 15 years ago. I think of my friend Cheryl, who used to co-teach ministry classes with me at Azusa Pacific University, who, who died of renal cancer a couple of years ago, and yet her witness continues to encourage and cheer on the many, many APU alumni serving in ministry today. That's the cloud of witnesses. Whenever we say the Apostles' Creed together as a church, we say we believe in the communion of the saints The communion of the saints describes the union we have with other believers living and dead across time. And although we don't talk to them and they don't communicate to us while we're running our part of the race, we are part of the same community as this cloud of witnesses because we're running the same race that they ran. And if we want to persevere, we need the encouragement of the crowd. To persevere in this race, we also need to let go of what holds us back. We need to let go of some things. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Some things hinder us, and some things entangle us. The the phrase everything that hinders describes the things in our lives that are weighing us down from persevering in the race of faith. In the ancient Olympics, runners would shed unnecessary body weight as they prepared to run their race. The things that hinder us in our race are not necessarily bad things, but they're weighing us down, causing us to have difficulty persevering. And the things that weigh us down, it could be a relationship in our lives or a hobby or an interest or a habit. A 19th century pastor named F.B. Meyer points out that what hinders one person in their race of faith may not hinder another person. And so that we shouldn't judge what's hindering another person, we should focus our energy on discerning what's weighing us down and hindering us in our race of faith. But verse 1 also encourages us to let go of the sin that so easily entangles us. Back in the ancient world when this was written, both men and women would wear a cloak or a robe when they were out and about in public. And trying to run while you're wearing a cloak or a robe, it's downright dangerous because your legs get tangled in the folds of the cloak and you risk falling on your face. And like a cloak, our temptations to sin encircle us and entangle us as we try to run the race of faith. And the author doesn't define exactly which sins he's talking about, probably because they're different for everybody. In fact, you probably know better than anyone what sins entangle you and trip you up in the race of faith. Perhaps for some, it's pride, a a tendency to think too highly of yourself and to look down on other people. Or for others, it may be deceit, a habit of putting on a show and pretending to be something we're not and hiding who we really are from others. For some, it might be greed, a hunger to constantly gain more and more and to hold on to it tightly. For others, it might be lust, an urge to gratify your physical cravings in ways that are outside of the boundaries set forth in the Bible. If we want to run with perseverance, we need to let go of some things in order to persevere. Third, to persevere in this race, we need to look past the struggle to the goal. Look past the struggle to the goal. Verse 2 urges us to fix our eyes on Jesus. A pioneer and perfecter of faith, The ultimate example of someone who ran the race and finished. Because Jesus is not just the object of our faith. He's also the example of our faith and the goal of our faith. Jesus is the finish line. And so verse 3 urges us to consider Jesus. The Greek word our author uses in verse 3 means to thoroughly study Jesus to thoroughly study the example and the actions and the teachings and the priorities of Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus by thoroughly studying his life laid out for us in the scriptures. There are a lot of people these days who talk about Jesus but have never really thoroughly studied his way of life. Now, the race that Jesus ran was a difficult one. His race included crucifixion, a horrible way to die. His race was publicly humiliating. He endured opposition from the very people he came to love and to save. Nevertheless, Hebrews says that he ran his race with joy because his eyes were fixed on the goal, which was our salvation. And at the end of his race, he was vindicated. He sat down at the right hand of God's throne. And although our race isn't nearly as difficult as the one Jesus ran, our race can be hard too. Our race is filled with challenges and difficulties, physical limitations, fractured relationships, disappointments, and suffering. In verse 4, our author says that they have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their own blood, and that, that haunting word yet seems to apply that the author of Hebrews thinks that some of his readers will lose their lives for their faith in Jesus. We don't talk a lot about that these days, about martyrdom. But throughout church history and around the world, God's people have sometimes faced the possibility of having their bloodshed for their faith in Jesus. A very real possibility for Christians in places like China, Iran, and North Korea today. And we certainly shouldn't seek out martyrdom as if it were somehow something to be sought, a feather in our cap. It reminds me of a story in the second century, the Roman government started rounding up and executing Christians in Egypt. And there was an Egyptian church leader named Leo who was arrested and sentenced to die by the Roman government. And while Leo was on death row awaiting his execution, his 17-year-old son, Origen, wanted to turn himself in to the Roman government so he could stand side by side with his dad and be martyred with his dad. Origen's mom tried to talk him out of it, but he was undeterred. As a young man, he was seeking out martyrdom. And so Origen's mom did what any mom might do. She hid all of his clothes while he was sleeping so he couldn't leave the house on the day of his father's execution. It's a true story. And Origen ended up growing up to be an important and influential church leader in the second century church. The race is hard. For some, it's dangerous. But we need to look past the struggle to the goal. To Jesus, the finish line, if we want to persevere in this race. Fourth, we need to receive hardship as loving instruction. Receive hardship as loving instruction. In verses 5 through 11, the author seems to change metaphors to a parenting metaphor. He quotes a passage from the Old Testament book of Proverbs about sons experiencing fatherly discipline. And when we hear the word discipline, we, we think of maybe spanking or a timeout or, or grounding or taking away the car keys from our teenager. We think of discipline as punishment for something done wrong, but that's the, not the primary meaning of this word. This word discipline primarily means instruction or training or teaching. Des, it describes the entire classical Greek educational system was Discipline. And in this passage, we're told that that when we experience discipline, we face two temptations. One is we're tempted to make light of it, to, to regard it as having little value, to dismiss it. But others are tempted to lose heart, grow discouraged, to want to give up. And so our author reminds us here that God's discipline in our lives, the hardships we go through, is an act of love. It's proof of our status as God's sons and daughters. Earthly parents discipline their kids the way that they see fit. And sometimes earthly fathers do this well. Other times they don't. Some parents don't discipline their kids at all. Others abuse kids and call that discipline. But the point of this passage is that God is not like our earthly fathers. God is good. And his discipline, his instruction, his training is for our good, for our flourishing, even if it's painful at the time. God's instruction leads us to share in God's holiness, which we're going to talk about a lot next week. God's discipline is like a seed that grows into righteousness and peace in our lives. God's discipline produces good in our lives if we allow ourselves to be trained by it. And so when we experience hardships in the race of faith, Hebrews invites us to receive those hardships as God's discipline, God's loving instruction. I read about someone who was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And somewhere along the trail, I think somewhere around Oregon, she hurt her knee and she couldn't hike anymore. And so she faced a decision either to quit and go home or to get a room in Oregon and to rehab her knee so she could get back on the trail. And she chose to get a room and to do the work necessary to rehab her knee. And it took her a long time to recover, but eventually she did, so she could get back on the trail and finish her journey. Hardship in this race is God's instruction. There's a Reformed theologian named Garrett Burkauer, and he puts it this way. He says, apart from faith, these bitter and hard facts can never be rightly understood. But through faith, it's possible to see their purpose. We want to persevere in the race of faith. We need to receive the hardships that happen as God's loving instruction. Finally, lastly, we need to stay on the course. Stay on the course. Verses 11 and 12 picture the end of the race. Arms are burning, knees are throbbing, legs are cramping, heart is pounding as the runner makes the turn into the final stretch before the finish line. The the picture in these verses is of an exhausted runner who's already run most of the race, getting their final shot of adrenaline, their second win before the finish line. And the phrase make level paths probably refers to making sure we're still in our lane, still on the course. we we'll persevere when we stay on the course, even when we're exhausted. Living by faith is a marathon. Not a literal marathon of 26 miles or even an ultra marathon of 100 miles, but a lifelong marathon. And in this race, it's not about how strong or how faith or how strong or how weak your faith is at any given time along the race. It's about the fact that you keep on going. Sometimes your faith is going to be strong. And sometimes you're going to wonder if you can take another step, but persevere. So at the end of our race, we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, his final book before he was martyred. Paul wrote, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only for me, but for all who have longed for his appearing, for you, for me, for us. May that be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these encouraging words of scripture. And as I think about a a gathering this large Lord, I know that there are some at the beginning of this race who are amped up and psyched and whose faith is strong. And there are some whose legs are throbbing, hearts are pounding, who wonder if they can take another step whose faith seems weak. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Lord, help us fix our eyes on him. Help us live by faith and not by sight godly men and women of old have done that we might run our leg in the journey and pass the baton to those who come behind us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.